Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus rose from the dead. On that first Easter morning so long ago, no one expected it. He had told everybody it was going to happen, but nobody expected it. And his resurrection changes everything. Him coming back from the tomb makes meaning and purpose possible in all of our lives, each of our lives, every single day. As we turn to your word today, as we rehearse once again the account from the Gospel of Matthew of what happened on that day, we praise you that we have the record. Much more importantly, we praise you that we have your presence in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray for your spirit to speak uh, through us, to us, as we hear these words once again, that we can live each and every day with you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in charge of our lives, that you can be glorified, that we can help your kingdom to grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. That affirmation has echoed down through the centuries for 2,000 years just about Christians around the world. In fact, it has echoed around the world, even though people have tried to stop it, people have tried to, to end it. But here we are today, and still all these years after Jesus rose from the dead, we proclaim that truth. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And today we launch a brief three-week series. It's titled, New Beginnings, Redux. It focuses on Jesus coming back from the tomb and also our ability to come back from despair and isolation and our ability to come back from doubt when we put him first in our lives. For those who, like me, were not sure what the word redux means, let me give you the definition. Redux means brought back, resurgent, as in the Victorian era, redux. One of our younger message team planners I uh, came up with that idea for the Easter series, and uh, when I say one of the younger members, that's everybody but me these days. I'm the only one on the team that's not young. Anyway, they thought it would be a good way for us to talk about Jesus coming back from the dead and also how we can come back when we rely on God from times of isolation and despair and from times of doubt. So we can say this for sure. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is history's greatest example of someone or something being brought back or resurgent. Let's take a quick look at our take-home point, the one point that I'm going to be making from Scripture today to see what I mean. So here it is. Jesus came back from the tomb to show us God's power has no limits. Jesus came back from the tomb to show us that God's power has no limits. Jesus' birth was unique. His father was the Holy Spirit, and his mother was a virgin when she conceived him. In Jesus, God came to earth as a human being. That had never happened before. It's never happened since. And the reason Jesus came was to redeem us. Redeem means to pay the purchase price for freedom from slavery. So freedom from what? Freedom from sin and death. God had established that only those who are perfect can stand in his presence. And yet not a single one of us is ever perfect. So God became one of us. He lived a perfect life, and then he gave that life away on the cross so we could have freedom. Jesus' blood being shed, Jesus' life given, paid for our rejecting God. Now, if that sounds strange to you, if that sounds incredible, as in unbelievable, I agree. Every time I think about Jesus coming to the earth in the first place, 
and then dying on the cross, giving his innocent life to purchase our freedom, I'm amazed. It's just incredible to me. Who would do that? I say, why? Why would God make that kind of sacrifice? And why would he do it for people that don't even believe that he exists, people that reject him? Who does that? Well, the short answer is only the God of the universe does that. As we find in the book of the prophet Isaiah, God said this, For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So if we don't always understand why or how God does something, that makes sense. God's thoughts, God's ways are as high above ours as the heavens are above the earth. I find it interesting these days, it seems like you hear about a person nearly every day, maybe even some prominent people who are deconstructing or leaving the Christian faith. And they do it because they've thought it through and they've realized that maybe their belief in God isn't founded on as much of a basis as they thought it was. Or, or a lot of times it's because there's so much suffering in the world. And if there's a good God, how could there be suffering? Or, or maybe whatever it is that's going on in their lives right now, they just don't understand how, how, if there's a God, how it could happen. And let me say first, I get that. When I look around the world these days and I see everything that's going on, there are a lot of days I wonder too, like how could a good God be in charge when all this stuff is happening? But then when I think about that, I think about something else. God is good. He is faithful. He is loving. He's truthful. He's all of those things. And there's so much evidence for that. And so what I do in the midst of that, whenever there's evidence in this way and evidence in that way, I, I take the, the goodness and the, the truth and the love and I add one step of faith and then another step of faith and another step of faith. Then I think about something the Apostle Paul said about our understanding, about how things are in the world. He told a group of people in a church in a place called Corinth this a long time ago. He said this, Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Now, Paul wrote those words a couple thousand years ago, so we have billions of pieces of information that Paul didn't have at his fingertips. And I mean, we can Google it, right? But what Paul said still stands. Our understanding of God and of God's ways, it doesn't even scratch the surface of everything there is to know about God. Let me compare it to this. Many decades ago, my dad was in a car accident. He was actually sitting at an intersection. He was just stopped at an intersection. He was waiting for traffic coming from the left to clear the intersection. And one of those cars, instead of going on by, came in, made a turn. Instead of making the turn in the intersection, it was, the car was driven by a teenager, a young teenager, a new driver. And so he came around the curve and he smashed right into my dad's car. Now, after smashing into my dad's car, this teenager jumps out of the car. He runs over to my dad's car. And as my dad rolls down the window, I mean, it's so long ago, he actually had to roll down the window, not press the button. This young teenager starts screaming at my dad that it was my dad's fault. Now, my dad was never known as a patient man. But he looked that young teenager in the eye and he said, son, I've driven miles to your inches. Let's just sit here and wait till the police come and let them decide whose fault it was. 
Now, I imagine God having similar words for us when we start telling him what we don't understand or what we don't like about the world, that it's his fault. You know, God has thought miles to our inches, maybe light years to our inches. So let's turn to the account of Jesus' resurrection to see how his return from the dead, from the tomb, changed everything and shows us that God's power has no limits. We find four accounts of Jesus' resurrection because there are four Gospels, four accounts of Jesus' life. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look in Matthew's Gospel today. We're going to turn to chapter 28 if you'd like to follow along in your own Bibles or your Bible app. It's also going to be on the screen. We're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 to 20, but we're going to do it a few verses at a time and then we're going to reflect on those few verses. So it says this, early on Sunday morning, that would be Easter morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. So these details about the moments leading up to Jesus' resurrection tell us quite a few things. First of all, tells us it was Sunday morning. It was early. It was just dawning the new day. We are told that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to visit the tomb. Well, the other Gospels tell us they weren't on a visit to the tomb. They were going there to finish the job of embalming that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had started on Friday evening right after Jesus had died. They weren't able to finish because it was coming into a very sacred Sabbath, the Passover Sabbath. So they were there to finish embalming Jesus. But they had a problem. They thought they had a problem. The problem was, the other Gospels tell us, not Matthew's Gospel, but the other Gospels, they didn't know how they were going to open the tomb because there was a big stone in front of it. Well, of course, what we just read tells us they didn't need to worry about the stone being rolled away because it had already rolled away. An earthquake and an angel had come and rolled it away. And now the angel's sitting on top of the stone. And picture that. I love the details. It says his face shone like lightning. Could you imagine someone, a being with a face that was as bright as lightning and his clothes were as white as snow? pretty clean clothes as well. So I, I love that description. I love the details. So if you read all four gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection, what you're going to find is there are some details that seem to be contradictory. In particular, some of the gospels say one angel, some say two. Some of the gospels say that it was just Mary Magdalene. Another says it was, this one says Mary and uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Another one says there were three women came to the tomb. The reason I bring that up is because some people say, well, see, that proves that the Bible's not true, or, or at least it proves that it wasn't inspired by God, because if it was inspired by God, they would all say the same thing. Now, really, all it proves is that the four gospel writers didn't sit down and combine their stories so that they would have one seamless story that told exactly what happened. And you know, in my experience, the only time somebody tells exactly the same story as somebody else is when they've collaborated and made up the story because it isn't true. When something happens, even if people had seen that accident that my dad had with the teenager, they would have reported it from two different perspectives. Certainly the young man thought it was my dad's fault and my dad was very clear that it was not his fault. So, whether it's one or two angels, whether it's one, two or three women, the facts of the story remain the same. Jesus was dead on Friday 
and alive on Sunday, which means he came back from the tomb. That's what demonstrates God's unlimited power. It's what launched the church of Jesus Christ. Matthew provided another detail that none of the other gospels did. The detail that he offered was that when the angel came and rolled away the stone, the earthquake happened, the soldiers who were guarding the tomb fell into a dead faint. Now that sounds pretty believable to me. If I were one of those soldiers, I would have been very frightened. What's hard to believe is what happens next. It says, then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was lying. Now, why didn't the women fall into a dead faint out of fear when they saw the angel? We don't know. But what about the angel, what the angel said to the women after he said, don't be afraid? He told them Jesus who was crucified and had risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Jesus had risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Now that's incredible. We've heard or read that story so many times that we sort of take it for granted. Well, it's Easter, Jesus rose from the dead. Really? How many people have you seen rise from the dead? I mean, Jesus was stone cold dead on Friday. And yet here on Sunday morning, the angel is saying, he's alive. Come and look, the tomb's empty. There's nobody in there. They had seen the first part of what the angel said. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again from the dead. Jesus had said that many times. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again from the dead. They had all seen him die on Friday. Jesus disciples, the women that were there that morning, they'd seen him die. But not one of them expected him to be alive that day. We know they didn't expect him to be alive. You know how we know that? Because none of them were there. You know, nobody was out there with a little countdown clock going 10, 9, 8 on the moment of dawn. None of them expected Jesus to be alive. Now, once Jesus rose from the dead, those who didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead told a story. In fact, people down through the centuries have come up with all these explanations for what actually happened. Because if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, you have to make an explanation for the empty tomb, right? So one of the explanations we're going to read about in a moment is that the disciples stole his body. Another story that people have made up is that dogs came and ate Jesus, like bones and all. There wasn't anything left. How'd the dogs get in the tomb? Another story that's been told is Jesus wasn't really dead. It's called the swoon theory. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. You know, he just sort of fainted. But when he got into that nice cold tomb, um, he rejuvenated. You can see how ridiculous that story is, right? I mean, Jesus was beaten almost to death before they crucified him. And then they stuck a spear in his side. Jesus was dead on Friday. Nobody doubted that Jesus was dead on Friday. But the story that we're going to hear about is that Jesus' disciples had stolen his body. And that's a really hard one to, to buy as well for this reason. Jesus' disciples were scared to death. They thought that just as Jesus was crucified, that the Romans would come and gather them up and crucify them, or at least have them put to death in some kind of fashion. So they were locked behind closed doors, bolted doors, because they, they, were, they were scared to death. They were not going to steal Jesus' body. And how about this? 11 of the 12 disciples, and there were only 11 left, but there, Paul the apostle replaced Judas, so there were 12 apostles. 11 of the 12 were martyred rather than say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. 
Now, there have been a lot of people down through history who have died for a lie that they thought was the truth. But no sane person dies for a lie they know is a lie. And so if the disciples stole his body and then started telling everybody that he was really alive, Jesus was alive, and then they were going to get arrested and crucified upside down as Peter was, unless he changed the story, I think they would have changed the story. Anyway, the angel continues his message to the women. It says, and now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I've told you. Now, I don't think the angel needed to remind them to remember what he said. They probably knew. But with that vital message from Jesus for the disciples, this is what happened next. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. So they had this mixture of fear and excitement. And the adrenaline made these middle-aged women run to find the disciples. As they ran, something happened that as if they hadn't already had enough excitement for the day that was incredible. It says this, And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. So the women had believed the angel's message. I mean, they were already running to find the disciples. And then they see Jesus. They didn't have to believe that the story was true that the angel told. They saw Jesus. They worshiped him. They held on to him. They hugged him. And then Jesus repeated the message, go get my brothers, send them to Galilee, and I'll meet them there. So they needed to go now, find the disciples, and tell them that Jesus was alive. They had seen him themselves and that Jesus would meet them in Galilee. With the women rushing to fulfill their assignment, Matthew breaks away from them in his account, and he goes back to the tomb and back to the guards who are now standing in front of an empty tomb. This is what Matthew wrote. As the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and told the leading priests what had happened. A meeting with the elders was called, and they decided to give the soldiers a large bribe. They told the soldiers, you must say, Jesus' disciples came during the night while we were sleeping, and they stole his body. If the governor hears about it, we'll stand up for you so you won't get in trouble. So the guards accepted the bribe, and said what they were told to say. Their story spread widely among the Jews, and they still tell it today. Now, if you're wondering, why did the guards who were Roman soldiers, why did they go to the religious leaders instead of to their superiors? Well, the simple answer to that question is, if you're a Roman soldier and you fail to carry out your duty, they execute you. There's no grace at that period of time in the Roman army. So they went to the religious leaders. It was their least bad choice. And they told them what happened. Now, that we don't know what the soldiers said because, remember, they had fallen into a dead faint when the angel appeared, so they don't maybe know exactly what happened. When they woke up from their dead faint, what they do know is the tomb's empty. The door's open, the tomb's empty. So they go back and tell the religious leaders. The religious leaders call a big meeting and they say, here's what you're going to do. We're going to give you a big bribe, a lot of money. And all you need to do is if anybody asks you, you just say that during the night while you were asleep, the disciples of Jesus came and took him away. Now, you don't have to be a detective to see the problem with that story, right? If they were sleeping, how do they know what happened? And the other thing is, if a Roman soldier fell asleep while on guard duty, he was executed. You can see then why the 
religious leaders said, if the governor hears about it, we'll cover it over for you. At least that part of the story makes sense. But what Matthew said is, even though the story's absurd on the face of it, it was circulated widely and people believed it up until the time when Matthew wrote his gospel because he said, to this day, that story is still believed by some. So meanwhile, the women got the message to the disciples. So the disciples head to Galilee, which is 100 miles north of Jerusalem. So it probably took them a while to get there. And when they get there, here's how Matthew tells us things shook out. It says, then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. So when the 11 disciples, 11, not 12, because Judas had hung himself, when they saw Jesus, it said they worshiped him. For sure, they would worship him. I mean, he was dead three days before, or maybe four, depending on how long it took him to get there, right? But he had been a dead man, hanging on a cross the last time they saw him. And now he's standing in front of him alive. Now, the thing that's really weird, though, it says, but some of them doubted. How many? I mean, we know about Thomas, because John's gospel tells us that Thomas doubted Jesus' resurrection. But was it one? Was it two? Three? How many? And, and, and another thing is, if Matthew was making this story up about Jesus rising from the dead, he most certainly wouldn't have told about some doubting disciples. Why would you tell a story about a man who rose from the dead and then say, yeah, but some of the people doubted? Well, maybe because it's what actually happened. Jesus seemed to be hard to um, identify after he rose from the dead. We know that he appeared a couple of times to his disciples after he rose from the dead, and they didn't really know it was him at first most of the time. Now, I'll be honest with you, when I die and rise from the dead, I hope I look a little different than this myself. But that aside, we all have doubts at times. And even those disciples had doubts, even though Jesus was standing right in front of them. Once they finished worshiping and doubting, it says this, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We call this Jesus' great commission. Jesus commanded his disciples to go out with his authority and make disciples of all nations. A disciple is someone who learns the commands of Jesus and lives the commands of Jesus. In fact, to put it simply, what a disciple is, is a person who does what Jesus would do if Jesus were that person. That's what a disciple is. They get baptized, as Jesus did. They follow Jesus' commands in their daily lives. So, Jesus' resurrection mandate calls us to live in God's unlimited power. Why did I just say that? Why is this great commission or this resurrection mandate a call for us to live in Jesus' unlimited power every day? Because we can't do it in our own power. And here's the other thing. A lot of people on Easter Day today, people dress up, they go to churches by millions, millions and millions of people here in the U.S. and all over the world. But then the next day, they act as if it was just another day. And it doesn't matter whether we're rich or poor, old or young, weak or strong. If Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord, meaning he has rescued us from sin, if he's our Savior and death, 
meaning he gets to tell us what to do if he's our Lord. It means that we get to live our lives differently all the other days of the year. You know, over the past few weeks, previous to this, we have had a couple of young men in our, in our community who have died tragically. And, and Easter speaks to what happened and what could have happened. And I, I really want to say this very clearly and, and as compassionately as I can say this. Whenever we get dressed up on Easter Day and then we go about the rest of our 364 days of the year as if nothing happened, it contributes to people's despair and depression and isolation. We all have doubts about our lives, about how significant we are, about God's ability to make a difference in our lives. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then we need to understand nothing in this life is greater than God's love for us and his power to work in us is unlimited. Let me say that again. Nothing in this life is greater than God's love for us. Nothing. And his power to work in us is unlimited. This life is hard. On our very best days, we're going to have trials and tests and temptations. And we were never intended to face them alone or without help. Being Jesus' follower doesn't mean just celebrating Easter or Christmas or some of the other powerful, important days of Jesus' life. It means that we live this day of joy with celebration as we are and then we carry that joy and that celebration into the tough days that we face, the other 364 days of the year. It means Jesus is with us every one of those days by the presence and power of his Holy Spirit. It means strengthening one another at home, at school, at work, wherever we are. Please don't make today a one-and-done worship experience for April. But remember to be here and worship with us as we talk about how we overcome isolation and despair next week and how we come overcome doubt the week after that. And the week after that, we're going to be talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. You know, over the years, when a person has taken his or her own life, or whenever somebody ends up in the, in the hospital because of mental issues or physical issues that nobody saw coming, I've always heard people say this, why didn't he reach out to someone? Why didn't she reach out to me? Why didn't she know, he know that we were there? And, and there are no pat answers that we can give to those questions. But this much is, is sure. When we stand together in Jesus' name and we experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit daily, we can overcome whatever we face. Jesus rose from the dead so that we can face whatever experiences we are going to face in this life. That's why today's next step is, I will follow Jesus out of the tombs in my life and go wherever he sends me to make disciples. I will follow Jesus out of the tombs in my life and go wherever he sends me to make disciples. Jesus died and rose again to give us a life that is for today and forever. He shed his innocent blood on the cross so that we can be forgiven of whatever it is that we're holding on to in our life right now, whatever it is that's weighing us down, whatever the burden might be, so that we can live in victory over those things. Nothing you or I are facing right now is too big for Jesus. After all, he came back from the tomb, which means he can bring us back from anything. 
I'm so glad that each of you is here today. So let's follow him tomorrow and the next day and the next and do whatever it is he asks us to do. Go wherever it is he asks us to go and let's do it together because by God's grace and power and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to overcome the tomb and anything else in life we face. That's the surest way that we can live the life that will ensure that one day we get to see that resurrected Jesus ourselves. Before we can live Jesus' resurrection power in our lives, well, we have to experience Jesus as Savior and Lord. Savior, as I've said, means that He saved us or rescued us from sin and death. Lord means that He is our master or owner. Jesus said that anyone who comes to Him, He'll never turn away. And so you can come to Him right now if you have never done that before. If you've never trusted Jesus, Savior and Lord, here at New Life, we say to do that is simple. I mean, the life of following Jesus is challenging. It's hard. We still face tests and temptation and trials every day, even after Jesus, Savior and Lord in our life. But it's so simple to make Jesus Lord in our life. All we have to do, as we say here at New Life, it's as simple as A, B, C. We have to, first of all, admit. Admit that we're sinners. Admit that we have not done the things that God created us to do. Admit that our lives have been filled with temptation that we've succumbed to in our lives. We haven't overcome them in our own power. Then B, we believe what we just read, what we just heard, what we just talked about, Jesus rising from the tomb, coming out of the tomb alive, appearing to the disciples, being worshiped by the women. Is that true? If it's true, and then we believe it, then Jesus can become Lord and Savior in our life because he's not some dead guy from 2,000 years ago. He rose from the dead. He went back to heaven. Right now, he's with God the Father, and he's coming again. And so we need to believe that. Not believe about it, but believe it in our hearts. Trust it for everyday living. And as we do that, then we see, confess. We confess to God those sins that we just talked about, the shortcomings that we've had in our lives. And then we confess to anybody who will listen Look, there's a God who has a son named Jesus who came to the earth and he lived a perfect life and he died and he rose again. And he's my Lord, my Savior, and he can be yours too. If that's what you want for your life right now, then I would encourage you to pray with me. Now, I want you to understand something. When we pray right now and we admit and believe and confess and we trust Jesus, Savior and Lord, for the very first time, that is not the end. That's just the beginning. When Jesus came out of the tomb and appeared to those 11 disciples on that mountain, that wasn't the end of everything. That was the beginning of the living out of the Great Commission, and it's still being lived out today. We get to be part of it. So let's pray right now, and if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I admit to you that I'm a sinner, that I need you. I need your life in me. Heavenly Father, I admit that your son Jesus is Lord. He's owner, master in my life. That he saves me from sin and death. That when he died on the cross, I should have been there. But instead he was. And God, I confess all those sins of my life. I pour them out to you. I ask for your forgiveness. I turn away from them. And God, I ask you to give me your Holy Spirit in my life. Let me live that new life that, that I know that I, I want 
and that you promise I can have. And God, I pray right now that from this day forward, I will live my life, not just to celebrate Easter on Easter day, but to live with Jesus in my heart every day and to know that your unlimited power is available to me in Jesus' name. And God, for all of us who have trusted you as Savior, and Lord, we've been living in your name and in the power of your Holy Spirit for days or weeks or months or years or decades. God, we thank you for this day when we remember what you did in raising Jesus from the dead and and what you continue to do in sending your spirit to give that unlimited power to us so that we can also live lives of meaning and purpose and significance so that we can see you heal the sick and cast evil out of people and even, yes, raise the dead. And we know that sometimes that happens here and now and sometimes that resurrection is when we die and come to be with you. But one day Jesus is going to return and we thank you for that day and ask that you will continue to let us live our life day by day in such a way that we will be ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for watching today. Thank you so much for celebrating Easter with us. We pray God's blessings upon you and we pray that the power of Easter, the power of resurrection will be with you every moment of every day in the week ahead. God bless.